there is this fundamental false narrative, as you would say, that, yeah, God loves you because that's, you know, he kind of has to. And, um, but, but he's really opposed to you. So we don't know exactly what kind of love that is. It doesn't really match the way that we love our own kids or our grandkids, but you know, God's ways aren't our ways. I mean, we do all this mental gymnastics theologically in, in order to, to get God off the hook of, of, of our imperceptions or our, our false delusions about God. And, and by that little phrase, that little phrase, I'm especially fond of you, it changed things. And the reason it did is because when you say God loves you, the emphasis is on God. It's not on you. It's on the subject. But when I say I'm especially fond of you, all of a sudden the uniqueness of your personhood emerges as the centerpiece of that statement. The object is the centerpiece. And we can feel it. That's William Paul Young. And this is the Things Above podcast. Our guest today is William Paul Young, uh, who goes by Paul. And many of you may know him as the author of The Shack, uh, which is both a book and a movie. And then a more recent book called Lies We Believe About God, which is fantastic. And I want to talk about that. But Paul, welcome to the Things Above conversation. Uh, Honored to be with you, Jim. It's really, it's really fantastic. Um, so for any listeners who maybe don't know you, um, The Shack, obviously, published in 2007, is a book that sold, wow, over 20 million copies and has gone on to be a major motion picture. And more importantly, in my book, has been a huge blessing uh, in many people's lives, including my own. And I love, I love it on so many levels. Uh, I've also written a fiction book about heaven, so I know uh, what, what some, what fiction can do for people and, and, and what it teaches theologically. Um, but you know, though the story is, is fictional, Paul, uh, in the shack, you managed to do some incredible heavy theological work. And I want to get to that, but, um, but first I want to just ask a basic question is, you know, how did the book come to be? Because I heard that initially you weren't getting much interest from publishers and, uh, and, and I heard a story, I don't know if it's true, so correct me, but that you actually initially maybe self-published. Is that, is well, that accurate? That's, that's true, but that's quite, quite far down the line. I never intended to publish it. Okay. I, ne- I never intended uh, that the world would read it. I never intended to be a published author. It wasn't like on my bucket list or anything. <laughs> and I've, I've written all my life, you know, and you write things for your kids and over the years, I began to write gifts for friends, and it was poetry and songs and short stories. And, and uh, you know, it's just a way of saying, thinking about you, love you, this is a gift, whatever. And um, <clears throat> Kim, whom I am married to, <laughs> she for about four years would say, you know, someday as a gift for our kids, would you just write something that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box? And... Um, and later, by the way, she said she she was thinking four to six pages, but uh, uh, but she didn't tell me that at the time. So <laughs> the year I turned 50, I finally felt like I had journeyed long enough and far enough that I was I was quite healthy um, comparative to where I started. And um, Mackenzie's weekend in the shack, for example, represents an 11 year dismantling, rebuilding 
uh, process for me. And mm. um, so uh, 50, I'm like, all right. I, and, and we had a really um, uh, disastrous, in a sense, uh, financial year, the year before I turned 50, so 2004, and which was part of the healing journey. It was the 11th year. And because uh, my, my journey was a lot about learning how to trust. And, and I come from a background where that just wasn't something that I was willing to take the risk in doing. Um, but over those 11 years, I slowly had learned how to trust. And one of the last big issues, um, a substitute for God is, is money. Because, you know, if you have a sense of certainty with, with money, then, you know, it's, you can kind of say you trust God, but you don't really. Hmm. And, um, and I ran into that in the 11th year and it was part of the healing journey. So we pretty much lost everything we had materially, including the house we lived in for 17 years, et cetera. And, uh, and it, it fundamentally changed something. We ended up in a season where we absolutely knew that the opposite of more was enough and we were surrounded by enough. Mm. And, um, and we'd been surrounded by enough our whole lives. I just didn't know it. Uh, cause, cause you don't stay present when you are a control freak. You, you are always creating imaginations that don't exist and trying to control the universe through these, these imaginations. Um, I call it future tripping and, um, mm. And it, and it pushes you out of the present. So how would you know that you're surrounded by enough when you're, you've got all these, you know, um, negative imaginations about being broke, where there's no God, there's no relationships, there's, you're living in a cardboard box, nobody loves you anymore. And, and it's, it's craziness, but, but we do it. And, um, and so my journey was to learn how to stop future tripping and learn how to stay simply inside the presence uh, of one day, the grace of one day. And, um, and that is, is important to the story about the book because when I wrote it, I wrote it as a gift for my kids for Christmas. I had nothing else to give them that year. And um, at Christmas, made 15 copies at Office Depot <laughs> and uh, 15 copies that did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And six went to our kids. Our youngest was 12 at the time. And then um, the extras I gave to my friends, Kim and I kept a copy and my friends immediately read it and started giving it to their friends. And that's sort of what caused this snowball effect. Well, we then went through a, a season where um, some, some guys in California, three, three men in California, read the manuscript and immediately started a conversation about, about uh, making a movie. Oh, wow. I mean, it was the first, that was before it was even put into print, like mass print. And, um, and so in the course of, con of that conversation, it was sort of decided like, you know what, let's, let's publish it. And, and then I was told, if you can sell 100,000 copies of a novel, Hollywood will come talk to you about a movie mm. because it's so rare. And, but I didn't realize how rare it was. You know, I just thought 100,000 people. Wow, that's there's more people than that in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and uh, so how hard could that be, you know? And um, I didn't know until a couple of years later that the average book only sold three to 5,000 copies. Right, right. And uh, if, you can, if you can sell a novel and sell 7,500 copies, you can legit put 
bestseller on your novel. <laughs> right. And, and I didn't know any of that. So, so we got it ready. I was working three jobs um, and, um, you know, shipping out soldering tips and for a manufacturer's rep warehouse and cleaning toilets and, and uh, hotel night clerk and hotline food processing, all kinds of pretty, pretty hard labor and um, uh, some of it. And then, um, uh, so slowly we did rewrites, got it ready. Um, the guys in California, uh, typeset and, um, and we sent it to 26 publishers and half of them were faith-based, half of them were secular mainstream press and the faith-based people and the secular folks both had one issue in common and one issue separate. The issue in common was they, nobody could figure out what genre this was. I mean, they didn't mm -hmm. know where to put it in a store. Is it self-help? Is it theology? Is it murder mystery? Is it whatever? So I was laughing last night at telling folks that I've even found it in a store next to Amish romances. Oh, and, yes. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I know about that. It's a uh, big thing now. It is a big thing. You know? <laughs> so um, thanks, Harrison Ford. You know? And yeah. um, so then um, the issue separating them was that the faith people thought it was too edgy and the secular folks thought it had too much Jesus. And so I got stuck between edgy and Jesus as far as the publishers <laughs> were concerned. And what none of us knew and has become quite obvious since is that there are millions of people that are stuck between edgy and Jesus. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, they, I, we got turned down by all 26 publishers. Nobody wanted to do it. And so I just asked a simple question for me and that is, well, so how hard is it to publish a book? So two of the three guys in California created a publishing house. Wow. And uh, I don't know, it's 500 bucks for the state of California or whatever. And, and uh, we pooled our resources for the first print run. One of the guys volunteered to ship the books out of his house at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And um, I'm working three jobs. Our goal was, because we ordered 10,000 copies from a local printer, which we were later told is... 8,000 in your garage after you've run out of friends and family. <laughs> and, uh, and so we gave a bunch away and stuff, but we had no marketing and no distribution, no promotion. We had a website. The only place you could buy the book was off the website, but the only place you could find the website address was at the back of the book. I mean, it's, we're brilliant. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, our goal was let's get through 10,000 copies in two years, work our way to 100,000 in five years, and then Hollywood will come talk to the guys about a movie. That, that was the big goal. And wow. uh, so three and a half months into this, I get a call from California and they're saying like, hey, we need to order more books. And I, I said, did we give them all away or what? <laughs> and uh, no, no, no. People are coming to the website and they buy one and then they come back and they buy five and then they come back and they buy cases. What? Really? Yeah. So we ordered, uh, and that was three and a half months. We'd gone through our 10,000 copies and then we ordered 20,000 and went through 20, actually 22,000. There's this thing called overage where the printer can accidentally, you know, print an extra 10% and charge you for them. And so we actually went through 11,000 in three and a half months and then 22,000 in 60 days and then 33,000 in 30 days. Unbelievable. It was, wow. it was. And, and I didn't even, I'm so naive about the whole industry. I, I'm like, shoot, why doesn't everybody do this? And this is easy. I didn't, I didn't realize 
you know, and then I started hearing terms like, this is a wildfire. And that yeah. was a publishing term for something that just strikes the general public in such a way that it creates new readers along with a whole bunch of others. Um, and, uh, and then it's a unicorn. You know, that was the other phrase that has come up. Unicorns are so rare. And this, the shack's rare. And but nobody saw it. I didn't. I had no clue anyway. But yeah. um, and so it just like started blowing up. And in the first 13 months out of that garage, two storage units and a local printer. And we marked the 13 months because at 13 month mark, the two guys who own the publishing house entered a uh, joint venture with Hachette, who took the book internationally. But in uh. those first 13 months, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the shack. I know. That is, that is an amazing, st I mean, you know, I've been around publishing a long time and that is, yeah, that is a unicorn and that's a wildfire for sure. Yeah. Cause that's, yeah. And I love too, Paul, that it's, it's, I loved how it started, that it was just for, too. for your people. Cause I, I, the, the book I wrote in room of marbles, which I dealt with a lot. I had, I lost a lot of people. We, our, our daughter died and mm, we had, uh, and she was too. Thank you. And, and my mother died. And then Rich Mullins, who was a very dear friend oh, of mine. Oh, I, I know who Rich is. Yeah. I, I, I'll talk about that because awesome God's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was an accident or not, but anyway. Uh, and so I was just really down with grief and I wrote this, uh, very cathartic little piece for myself about, about heaven, a, a, a vision I had of heaven. And I just gave it to my wife and my dad and some friends and, and lo and behold, it, not, not near the, to the, to the wildfire of what happened with you to be sure. But I, I resonate with the story of just writing something for you that was from the heart for people you love. That's fantastic. It is. And, and, you know, when I wrote the shack and I tell people these two things and the first one I already said, and that is 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. You know, all the rest of this is for me, God's sense of humor. I tell yeah. people it's, it's proof that God can still speak through Balaam's ass. You know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of my, my, yes. if you knew my whole story, that would totally make sense. And then yeah. the other thing I say, you know what, everything that mattered to me matters to me was in place before I wrote the book, you know, if, mm. cause if this kind of thing had happened in my thirties or whatever, when I was still all just a mess, which I couldn't have written it then, but if something like that had happened, it would have destroyed me and I'd have destroyed all my relationships along with it. Well, but, yeah. but by the time I turned 50, I'd done enough work where the book didn't give me identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, or love. Um, mm -hmm. And it hasn't added any of that to me. What it, what it gave to us, uh, m me and my family and my friends and the ripple effect, it gave us a wide open invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Oh, that's and, fantastic. Oh, it's unbelievable. Well, and, and I totally so agree. Beautiful. I totally agree because that kind of success, which is, it is so rare, but that kind of success can absolutely destroy a soul. I mean, I, uh, that's, I'm so glad that you were at a place where you were able to not, you know, get tied up in the worth of it. I think it was, the comedian Russell Brand, I don't know if you know that guy, he's kind of a trip, but he's out there. But he he uh, said, he had a line that stuck with me. He said, anyone who's had, you know, amazing success, hap they have to learn how to make friends with the emptiness of it. And mm. I just thought, wow, that's wisdom there. That Because you, 
I think everybody, until they have that, that kind of success, thinks, oh, that would be awesome. It's going to be great. You know what? It's actually empty. It doesn't do anything for you, but not many if people. In, especially in if you've been looking for it to do something for you. <laughs> right. You, you and then know, it really and then will it kill you. it doesn't deliver. You know, no. and, uh, but I wasn't looking for it. I was actually at a place in my life where I was v absolutely content and we had nothing, but I, I was at a place where I was comfortable inside my own skin. I had no secrets, no addictions. I was finally the same person in, in every situation and, and joy had become a constant companion rather than an occasional acquaintance. And finally I got to be the child, you know, for the first time in my life. So, uh. so many things were in place before I wrote it and I'm grateful you know, success as defined by the world is, is, is a different kind of pressure than, than suffering and loss. Uh, you know, it's, and I, I, and I think this is important. Um, I think success will bring more crap out of people than failure ever would. And part of that is because if you take an empty, like water bottle and you crush it to get the air out of it, that's like, you know, abandonment and, and sexual abuse and poverty and, and war. It's just, it just crushes you. But success and notoriety and platform is like pushing air into the bottle, expanding it from the inside. And that will reveal flaws in the bottle that crushing never would. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of people's lives, it is quote unquote success that has been the catalyst for transformation um, in ways that loss couldn't have done. And um, so, yeah. yeah. So I think well, I, God is behind success sometimes just in order to get at, get at our stuff. Wow. Well, you are, uh, you know, you're preaching to the choir here on that therapeutically for me, because uh, I, I wrote a book called The Good and Beautiful God and, and came out in 2009. And uh, when I wrote that book, it was just by being published. Richard Foster, who was a mentor of mm -hmm. mine, Richard said to me, uh, he said, um, with the publication of this book, you're, you're going to go from the minor leagues to the major leagues and you need to take that lightly in your soul. Yeah. Good and word. so I, and so I, I remember we were at lunch and I wrote it down on a napkin and I'm like, I don't know what this means mm -hmm. because I'd never had massive success in that regard and written books and done things, but nothing. Um, but you know, the book did do quite well. I mean, way beyond not like the shack big, but it definitely changed my life with sure. the impact of it. And so it's funny because just, just a year ago I had dinner with Richard and now, you know, almost 10 years. And I just, I said, I think I know what you mean because mm. when the success happens, it actually is harder on you than, than the struggles in a weird way. And, you know, you start to buy into things and think you're important and all this junk. And so, uh, it, it did though, Paul, it absolutely for me personally, and I'm being a little confessional now, but it did, it did, uh, make me really knuckle down and figure out what's really important here. And, and I'm, I, I'd like to say I came out of the other end pretty well, but that's great. Yeah. Abs yeah but well, enough of therapeutic therapy of Jim, but, um, <laughs> let's, let's go ahead. And well, you know, and let me, let me say this too. I'm, I have this great gift in my life. I'm surrounded by people who know me, love me and aren't impressed. Isn't that wonderful? It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I, I, I was on this like Christian television thing and I came back from Nashville and I was all high thinking I was important. And I walked into my door and my wife just looked at me and said, we're out of toilet paper. Ah. And, I went, <laughs> and I went, uh, you know, I was just on TV and she went, 
we're out of toilet paper. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I had, <laughs> I drove to the store winning. Okay. That was short lived. Um, but yeah, people who are totally unimpressed does bring yeah. you back down to earth. A, a, a lot of people who are successful really feel in their heart of hearts that it, it was sort of a fluke, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And, and, um, and, and what it creates around a lot of folks is loneliness, is an emptiness. And all of a sudden people will begin to relate to them differently. That hasn't happened for me. The people in my world are the same people who've always been there. And the relationships were already strong. And I'm so grateful for that. That's, a, that's amazing in your story that you were at that place at that time, because that is that is massive success. But beyond all that, I want to talk about, about what the shack is about theologically, because as I said, I mean, that's by trade, that's what I do. I do theology. I'm a professor. And I, I work in that area, but you do some amazing deep stuff. And I want to talk about that if, if it's okay with you, Paul, is that all right? Totally good. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So I've wrestled in preparation for this interview to, cause I don't want to spoil anything for someone who hasn't read the book, but basically the, this main character, Mac, uh, has a, a personal tragedy that makes him angry with God. And then a series of events brings him face to face. I guess I can say this without too much spoiling it in this place called sure. the shack where he meets the Trinity. <laughs> and, yeah. um, I mean, and, and it's just amazing that you, you, you do that. But, uh, right away when, when this character Mac meets the Trinity, they are, uh, not as you would expect. I mean, God, the father is played by an African-American woman named Papa and the Holy Spirit's played by an Asian woman. And, uh, and then of course, Jesus is played by a Middle Eastern man. I guess you did need to kind of stay with, within the storyline there, but how did you decide to portray the Trinity in these ways? Ah, so when you're introduced to the Holy Spirit in Genesis one, two, it's Ruach and Ruach is, is feminine and the pronouns are feminine, right? It just doesn't get translated very well that way. And, and, um, so throughout the, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Holy Spirit is is in feminine pronoun. And then there are lots of, lots of imagery for God and imagery and metaphor is, is one of the most helpful ways through which to see the character and nature of God. And, and I think that's why Jesus loves parables because the shack's really a parable and, and parables use language that opens up space so that you can see something you wouldn't otherwise see. And, um, and so when, when I was working on uh, a lot of years of theological work on the issue of women and, and, uh, and the nature of God, it, it became obvious that, you know, every Christian tradition um, believes that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't more masculine than feminine. And the imagery is all over the map. The imagery, again, not intended to define God. It's intended to open up a window through which you can see elements of the character and nature of God. So we have a psalmist who says, you know, God is a rock and we know God's not a rock, but we know what the psalmist means when he says God is a rock. It's the use of metaphor and, and, uh, or God is a strong tower or a shield. But in Isaiah, God is a nursing mother. El Shaddai is God is the breasted one. The word mercy 
comes from the same root as the word womb. So you're dealing with womb love. And and then you've got imagery for God in masculine terms, shepherd and, and king and animals, lion and eagle and mother hen and on and on it goes. Uh, and uh, another way to look at it is, you know, what kind of vision would we have to have in order to really capture a broad sense of the character and nature of God? Well, one way you could do it is to get to know seven and a half billion people because each one of them is created in the likeness and the image of God and yet so unique an expression of God that you can learn something about the character of God from every person who's ever been conceived. And that's only scratching the surface. So, um, so when I was, and you got to remember, I'm writing this for my kids. I'm not thinking the whole world's going to read this, although <laughs> I, I wouldn't have changed uh, the imagery at all. And, and I come from a very Western, I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, firstborn, and uh, uh, modern evangelical holiness uh, denomination, missions oriented. And um, so when I was growing up, you know, God, the father was, was the real God. I mean, Jesus was God, but not like God, the father, because God, the father was different than Jesus. I mean, that was our theology. And he was very masculine. He was Gandalf with a bad attitude somewhere <laughs> behind the back of Jesus. And, and, um, um, and that God never healed anything. In fact, I don't actually think that God exists. Um, but it, but definitely was real to us growing up. Um, mm -hmm. It was much more, that God is much more like Marduk or Baal or, you know, one of the Mesopotamian gods and ever the father of Jesus. But, um, but so when I'm working on this, I, I'm trying to communicate to my kids, I want you, my children, I want to be able to communicate to you uh, in some way um, an expression of the nature and character of God, the God who actually showed up and healed my heart and not the God that I grew up with. So, you know, I've grown up in a white colonialist, colonialist missional kind of um, frame of reference. And I wanted me to be the guy in trouble, Mackenzie. And I, and I didn't want a white God to be the resolution or solution. I wanted a God that was much bigger than that. And so I drew from imagery that is in scripture, but uh, broke some of the boundaries that we have. And, and just in order to, to shake the box enough, I, I have this saying that I think I got from the Holy Spirit. I tell people if they ever rewrite the Bible, I think this will be in it. And, uh, and it's uh, the only time you'll find God in a box is because he wants to be where we are. And um, mm. And, and I love that because this is a God who runs toward suffering, runs toward bondage, runs toward illusion and delusion and, uh, and not away. And, and we can count on that. I didn't know that growing up inside the church. I was afraid of that God, thought he was constantly disappointed and that I never lived up to his expectations. But um, a lot of that has changed for me over the course of my life. And I'm trying to communicate through the use of the of different imagery. But, you know, people are stuck in their mentalities. Even my mom, when she first tried to read the shack, you know, and she heard about it from her doctor and hairdresser before she even knew that I wrote <laughs> it. 
and 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 uh, and she didn't even tell him that she was related to me because she wasn't sure because she hadn't read it, you know. So when she tried to read it, when Papa came through the door as a large black African American woman, she shut the book, called my sister, and said, "Debbie, your brother is a heretic," and she <laughs> meant it, you know. So so and and it took. Uh, just a miraculous uh, story in order to get her past that place where she was stuck. And uh, she eventually loved the shack. In fact, my mom, who passed away a year ago, New Year's Eve day, mm. she um, she was a missionary wife. She was a nurse, a medical missionary. She was a pastor's wife. She grew up... Uh, and German Baptist, she had, all her life was focused and dedicated on God. And, and she wrote me an email. It's the only time she wrote me about the shack. Um, um, not that long before she passed away and, and she graduated. And, um, mm. and she, she said in that email, she said, you know, I want you to know something. Reading the shack was the first time in my life that I actually believed that God loved me. Mm, wow. That's my mom. Yeah. Right? And so we're, we have our ways that our mind has looked at things and we're stuck inside of them. And um, even, even some of my people have written me letters about Jesus, you know, and saying, how dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner? And I'm going like, for real? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, I thought it was pretty cool that he actually is played by a Jew in the movie, you know, <laughs> who'd have thought? Crazy and uh, yeah, so crazy. <laughs> but uh, but that's some of the reason that I use that kind of imagery from outside the box. And the and the thing is, I wasn't trying to to explain the Trinity um, because I went to seminary and stuff, so I know you know that God is the Trinity is like three parts of an orange or three stages of water. And but all those analogies were non-relational, and so right. they can't work fundamentally. They cannot work. And, um, and so what I did is I just, I just wrote them in relationship and lights went on all over the place unexpectedly. Mm. And, um, and I think that's one of the, one of the many surprises that came out of the shack is suddenly Trinitarian theology just, it, it got this huge boost. And I didn't know about the Torrance brothers. I didn't know about all these theologians that had mm. spent their lives, Baxter Kruger and, right. and, and others that had spent their lives working on Trinitarian relational theology. I, I did this coming from a totally different perspective in which I was just trying to resolve the distance between my head and my heart and, uh, and the brokenness in my life. And the way that it happened was because of the reality of the relationships that exist inside the Trinity. Mm. You know, and that we were created inside that, inside that love, inside that great dance. Yeah. Oh, the dance. That's right. Yeah. I didn't know the Torrance brothers were influential. So you read them sometime later? Later. Okay. Yeah. Because of yeah. Baxter, because Baxter okay. uh, Kruger, who wrote right. The Shack Revisited, Baxter, um, and all of his stuff is fantastic, but he studied with the Torrance brothers, got his PhD in Aberdeen, and yeah. then he ended up teaching uh, J.B. Torrance's classes when J.B. Uh, began to retire. I didn't so, know that. I got yeah. to meet James one time and it was, 
He was fantastic. And in an hour's conversation, James kept talking about doing ministry with these people. And he kept, I remember his refrain was, I, of course, I was teaching them about the Trinity, but I didn't use the word, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the word might be, but he said, everything I taught was the Trinity. And, and uh, yeah, I, that's beautiful, Paul, because it, the Trinity, you can't, it is relational and all of those metaphors break down somewhere. But the fact that uh, you, you are, you were able in the book to show this Trinitarian relationship. And there's so much I love. I love that scene where they're laughing at the table yeah, and where, me too. where, uh, and is it Sarah, you, is that how you say the yeah. Holy Spirit? It's, it's actually in the East Indian dialect. It's, it's either Sarayu or Sarayu. And it can Sarayu. be, it can be properly, um, accented on the first or second syllable. And that's a wild story. You know, I was working downtown and got on a Skype call selling, um, web conferencing services. And I ended up on a call with Geetika Prabhu from India. And it was the day that I had been asking God, is it okay if I come up with a name for the Holy Spirit? Because I had Papa and Jesus and I didn't want the Holy Ghost. And, uh, and on that call, um, I asked her, could you give me a list of words that mean the wind in your dialect? Mm. And she gave me about a dozen and I immediately was attracted to Saryu. And so, so she she, I said, that's beautiful. Do you name your children after this? She said, no, but I, we have a river named after this. So I've got wind and river, mm. uh, both metaphors for the Holy Spirit. And I said, so Gitika, what kind of wind is this? And she said, oh, Sarayu is the common wind that catches you by surprise. Oh. It's, she said, it's like when you're so hot, you think you're going to die. And suddenly out of nowhere comes this wind that just cools you down and changes everything. And I'm literally weeping because yeah. it was so right and so beautiful. But that's where the that's where that name comes from. So you're saying in that scene where Sarayu and Jesus and and Papa are laughing and 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 being in relationship together, mm -hmm. it's it's so beautiful. Yeah, and it's so right. Yeah, it is, and it just feels. It feels so good, and 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 in a, in a lovely way, because uh, I I'm I think of the Trinity all the time, and uh, you know I have a, a Trinity icon, which you know about, Paul. I sent you a picture of my Trinity yeah, icon, Rublev's icon, the Rublev's icon. But uh, you know, it, but I I'm I'm so moved by your imagery, both in the book and in the film, uh, that it's it's actually in some ways usurped even Rublev for me <laughs> in a good way. Oh, sweet! And, uh, I have yeah. somebody locally here in in Oregon who who has done an icon, a Rublev's icon, using the uh, depiction of the characters from the shack. And it's oh, I'm stunning. I'm, I'll, I'll have to send it to you. Would you please? I'll, I would I'll love be to forever grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about, I mean, as I said, you do some deep theology. I mean, obviously just with the Trinity itself, but you know, there are issues like, like, uh, right. Very early on, I think, uh, Max says to, to uh, I think it's to Papa he says you, know, you you knew I'd come, and Papa says yes, and then he says something. Was I free not to come? And I think she says something like uh, yes, but I'm not interested in prisons, which yeah. I think is brilliant. But I mean, right away you're dealing with a big issue like free will, Absolutely. right there, uh, and and that's because free will is at the centerpiece of everything, as far as I'm concerned. It is the greatest gift that God could ever bestow on a created being. And, and free will is not evil, but because of what it is and how close 
to the very being of God that it is, suddenly it contains this great potential for destruction. So in and of itself is not evil, but it contains within it the capacity for evil. But if you don't have it, you don't have love or relationship. And, um, and, and it's critical. It's critical to so much of our theology. And, and, and people will say, well, who's really actually free? You know, we're under the coercion of genetics and, and you know, all this other stuff. But at the heart of hearts, there is this space that has been created by God inside the human, inside the human person that has an ability to say yes or no. And without the ability to say no to God, the ability to say yes doesn't matter. And, um, and to borrow a Ravi Zacharias concept, which I love, and that is, Ravi says, you know, there's four, four things that God could have done with creation. One, he could have chosen not to create at all. Two, he could have created a universe in which everything was bound by natural law. That is, everything uh, obeyed in uh, intrinsic rules. And, um, and, and that's the second creation. The third one uh, could have been a creation like the second, except you add the human beings who think they have free will but don't actually. So... They just have the, they're under a delusion. Um, even that has been programmed into them that they think they have free will, but they don't. And then the fourth creation, which happens to be the one that we're in, human beings actually have an ability to say no to God and, and, and to say yes. Mm-hmm. And only in this fourth creation is there the possibility of love. And that's powerful. Right. And that's the right. risk. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's completely the risk. And, and, and I think that uh, God, knowing that risk and knowing the outcome, I mean, here's, here's a different way to put it. If there was a way to create a universe in which human beings existed with free will and they always would say yes, we would be in it. Mm-hmm. But there was no way to do it. There was yeah. the, the choice then becomes to create or not. And that is why Jesus is slain from the foundation of the world. He is plan A going in, knowing that we would exercise, inevitably exercise free will and say no to relationship, no to life, no to goodness, no to love. And uh, that's mm-hmm. the devastation. And that's the, yeah, that's the great challenge. You know, Paul, I think that the, the, the point of the book uh, that was, I mean, so moving for me, I mentioned earlier that we had a daughter who died at, at the age of two and she not, I mean, she died of, of natural causes. She was born with a chromosomal disorder, but, uh, but I still, you know, resonate with Mac. I was mad at God. I mean, I was really, uh, you know, how dare you do this? And so I, 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 I connected with him in that regard, Sure. but that scene where he, where he says to Papa, look, you're almighty God and you let this little girl die. You abandoned her. And then Papa says, I never left her. And then Max says, how can you say you can help me or help anybody? You left me, you left her, you left Jesus. Didn't he say, why have you forsaken me? And then Papa's great line, you misunderstand the mystery. I mean, that's the challenge that you're working with right there. I mean, there's at the end of the day, this still is a mystery of you know, and how we deal with that. And, 
Um, I mean, you're dealing in the book with the problem of evil or yeah, theodicy. In and a very th real way and in such a human way that I think that's one of the reasons the book did what it did. It didn't, it didn't opt out for some Christianese kind of thing. You know, it, it just ran right into it. And, and those are good questions. Those are real questions. Those are human questions. I mean, we had a six-month period when Kim and I were first married where Kim's mom went into the hospital for routine surgery, had a massive coronary and died. And three mm. months before Shirley died, my 18-year-old brother was killed. And three months after Shirley died, my five-year-old niece was killed the day after her fifth birthday. So in six months, we had three major shock losses. And it's kind of wow. like, what do you do with that? Where, you know, if God is all-powerful and now you're dealing with the sovereignty of God. And so I, I really wrestled with that too. And, and it is the problem of evil. And that's grounded in free will. And that's the cave scene. You know, so it's, right. it's Papa saying like, that's Sophia, who's the wisdom of God saying, so who do you want, who do you want Papa to stop? Right? You want stop you, stop your dad, stop your dad's dad? You know, at what point do you want God to take away this incredible gift? And at that point, you've dropped into creation number three or two, where your right. ability to choose no longer matters. Don't you realize what an incredible creation you are? Or maybe more forcefully, you don't realize what an incredible creation that you, that you are, that you have the power to say no to life. The thing about God is that, that God will never abandon you to that. That is, that the pursuit of the hound of heaven is eternal. And you're going to have to take that stance surrounded by the love of God. And if you don't want to let your darkness go, the love of God that surrounds you will be held to you. And if you want to let it go, the love of God that surrounds you will be heaven to you. But mm -hmm. it is the love of God that you cannot escape. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, potential spoiler here, but I the the point that was so moving to me. I mean, after you know, Mac has leveled this accusation. You even abandoned Jesus, and Papa shows the scars. Yes, like, I was there too. And for me, that's you know, that's for me understanding the Trinity is that there wasn't a dis or as James Torrance back our back to James Torrance. Mm -hmm. There's no God in back of Jesus. Right? right, that that they are unified. That even on the cross, God the Father was there, and that had idea to had to be, yeah. And that's for me, at least in my own journey of anger with God and 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 all of that, to realize, no, He was with my daughter. He was with me. He was with my wife. He never abandoned. Um, I think that's that's the only comfort you can have because, as you said, I mean, that's the risk of free will is that there's this broken world and. People are going to die and losses are going to happen. But in the end, God gets the last word and God's word is love. And I never abandoned you. And right. I just think you just did that so beautifully in those scenes. Uh, that mm -hmm. idea that I never left you, I never left him uh, is just so profound. And, and, and I, Paul the Apostle says that. He says, for God the Father was in Christ and reconciled the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. 
And, and that is a categorical statement of fact. And that is the verse that Martin Luther just pounded to the wall, right? And that's what spawned the Reformation. No separation. There is no separation ever between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, um, but we've created, you know, theories of the atonement that would suggest that there was separation at the cross. No, that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the cry of Jesus entering into the human existential delusion of separation. Right. And, and the point of it is there's never been separation. Now, we have an imagination that creation was spun out of God somehow, that God blew it into what? Not space, because space is created, but uh, like there is a separation between God and creation. No, all of Scripture repeatedly tells us that not only was creation created inside the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that the creation was specifically was created in Christ and is now held in and sustained in, by, for, through Christ. And so that when Mary is breastfeeding this little baby, she lives and moves and has her being in him. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? <laughs> That's yeah. mind-blowing. But it it's got to be mind-blowing, or, or else we've just made God in our own image. Exactly. It has to blow our minds. And, and, and I love the scene where uh, I think Papa says to, to Jesus, you know, go, go show Mac your handiwork. And he shows him the stars, you know, and yes. I love that. Yeah. Thanks because, for picking that up. There was a lot of little stuff like that. Yeah. Well, there's John 1, 1, right? And, yep, and, exactly. and, and, and Colossians 1, that the yep. entire universe is made through him. Everything visible by him and, and him. invisible was made in him and is now sustained and held together in him, for him, by him, through him. Yeah, and that's, I know. Yeah, and that's what's so beautiful about the Trinity being not separated, but you, as you just said earlier, God was in Christ reconciling the world. So the Father's there in the reconciliation of the cross, and then Jesus is there in the creation of the universe. Because I think we think, oh, God made the universe, Jesus reconciled it. No, no, no. They're <laughs> completely no. unified and one, and that's, of course, the mystery of the Trinity, how God is one, yet persons and all that. And you're doing some yeah. amazing stuff, Paul, and it's yeah, I just love so much. I could go on and on just with so many things that you you do within there. Um, but uh, I just have to ask a weird question. Please. Why did you chose Neil Young? Because he says, oh. I'm espe <laughs> especially fond of Neil Young. Because we couldn't get oh, that's Bruce in the Coburn's movie. rights. Oh, in the in the book, it's Bruce Coburn. Oh, perfect. Yes. Yeah, great, yeah, yeah. The great. So, which is my favorite? He's my favorite musician, and yeah, uh, you know, he's got thirty some albums, and he's and, amazing. Oh, one of the best uh, poets, um, yeah, poet uh, musicians, and one of the best guitarists in the world. And uh, his name's but, not spelled. If if listeners are going, who is that? It's C O C K. Yeah, Cockburn B is how it's B -U -R -N, spelled, yeah. but it's do, I hope Coburn. our listeners do check him out. Yeah, he's great. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, so, um, so it, it, you know, and <laughs> here's a funny story. It tells you how naive I was. So, so I hear that Bruce has gotten up on stage at one of his concerts, and and he says to he says, "Have any of you heard about this book called The Shack?" And 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 hands go up, and he goes like. Yeah, that guy violated my intellectual property rights all over the place, <laughs> which is absolutely true. I did, and that's and that's because I had no clue. 
And, um, but I love Coburn. In fact, I've said this, if I ever write a creative memoir, I could start every chapter with a different Coburn lyric and, and, and not deviate from him framing my entire, my entire journey in life. Cause he's got a, a, a big enough repertoire where there's that you can always find something. And, um, but, uh, because of that, uh, because of using so much Coburn, um, he got contacted uh, by a publisher and he wrote uh, Pacing the Cave. Oh, no, uh, Rumors of Glory, which is his spiritual memoir. And, mm. and as a result of that, I got to spend time with Bruce because he blames me for that. And, and in a good way, in a, in a tongue-in-cheek yeah, sort of way. Yeah, because yeah, so you sweet. used that phrase. Yeah, yeah. in the movie, um, in the scene where, where uh, Mackenzie comes out onto the porch after his first night uh, where he's had nightmares all night long and... Papa's got breakfast for him and she's, she's singing, humming, singing, um, only love can break your heart. Uh, Neil Young song. And, um, and then she says, how'd you sleep? And he goes, fine. She goes, dreams are important. Sometimes they're a way of opening up the window, letting the bad air out. That's mm. a Bruce Coburn lyric. Okay. Yeah. So go. I, I got him in there, but you got him in there. To, we had to do it a little <laughs> sideways because I uh, couldn't couldn't get the rights to have Papa singing a Coburn song right off the bat. So right, uh, <laughs> That's good. and we and we did fix that. You know, it's so funny the things you have to learn when you when you write a book. <laughs> right? Yeah, you have no idea about <laughs> oh, the things like that. So crazy, so fun. Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me ask a little bit about. I mean, I know personally, I've listened to you uh, tell your story and and. And I know that uh, your own life story, I mean, you were raised a missionary kid and um, you had some rough stuff in your in your early life. When I was listening to kind of your bio, I thought, how did Paul emerge a normal person? I mean, yeah, and then go on, question. go on to I become didn't. what you... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, di- I didn't be... I, I was pretty broken and early on, you know, the the combination of of having a dad who just didn't have a chip for being a dad who had who had uh, who had been severe had severe losses as a child. I mean, even a, f- a few days ago, last week I was with him and and I asked him some questions about his childhood that I've never broached. Um, it was a first time, and he started ta- telling me stories. I could have just like how did my dad emerge with any kind of coherency at all? And, um, and so, you know, he, he was part of a generation that didn't know what kind, what baggage was and wouldn't have known what to do with it. And, and, um, you know, he just put all his energy in trying to, trying to do the right thing for God and got involved in pioneer missions and stuff, but he was a very angry young man because of his own history. And, um, and he took it, he really took it out on, on his boys and I'm the firstborn. And, um, so that was one piece. And so I, I didn't want anything to do with him as a child. Um, he just terrified me. And so that was one of the issues. Then we moved into a tribal culture that was when I was a year old. And that was my first, that was my family. The, the tribal culture was my world. And um, I was the informant for Wycliffe when I was five years old when they came in to translate the language because I was the only one who could speak it fluently. 
and speak English. And um, and this and was then, in it was this in New Guinea? Yeah, the highlands okay. of New Guinea. And okay. New Guinea has over eight hundred unrelated language groups. It's it's an anomaly in the planet. And um, and so I mean unrelated language groups. There's no common language, no trade language. They, you know, it was all warfare and all this stuff. And our tribe was big. It had twenty to forty thousand people over a hundred square miles. And um, and so we were pioneer missionaries first in, and um, and so that was my that was you know Donnie the tribal dialect was my dreaming language and but the 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 tribe was animistic they practiced ritualistic cannibalism you know it's it was a rough place and at the same time there was so many beautiful things about growing up that way at the same time there was some really great trauma and. Sexual abuse started for me before I was five and, and in the tribal culture. But then I was sent away to boarding school at six. And at night, the big boys came and molested the little boys. And so uh, sexual abuse has the power to tear apart the fabric of the human soul in, in a way that almost nothing else does, which, which should tell us that human sexuality is incredibly powerfully beautiful yeah. and mm. uh, because of the kind of damage that it can do it the reverse it's just like free will right free will free will is this incredibly magnificent gift that has this capacity to do unbelievable damage and human sexuality is like that so i just um, and this is where the imagery for the shack originates it the shack then basically represents my soul. It's, it's my broken heart. It's the house on the inside that people helped me build. And that became the place that uh, was uh, the, the house of shame or the house of loss. That's where I stored all of my addictions and all, I hid all my secrets there. And I never wanted another human being to ever come into that space because I was terrified that if they found out what I was really like, then they would look at me with the same sense of disgust that um, I saw in a mirror. And, um, and so you learn to become a performer. I built a facade outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And I, it turns out that I'm actually smart and creative, which only empowered my ability to to fake it and to, and it probably is the reason it took as long as it did to come to any sense of integration and healing. Mm. But, um, but I was owned by shame and, um, had a thin layer of perfectionist performance that covered up this ocean of shame, shame, yeah. shame and guilt are, are different. Guilt is I've done something wrong and we all got to own and deal with that. But shame is I am something wrong. And yeah. we even had a theology that, that perpetrated that idea. So, you know, that, um, I call it post, you know, piece of shit theology, that that's mm -hmm. the truth of your being is that you're just a piece of crap. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's like, you know, sexual abuse teaches you that you're worthless. You're sometimes the way we grew up in our families taught us we were worthless being bullied at school taught us we were worthless. Um, on and on. Then our theology comes and God tells us we're worthless. And right. our only hope is that, you know, Jesus can cover up this filthy piece of trash 
in such a way that we, he can sneak me into heaven without God the Father finding out about it. And uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it's so bizarre, but but that's what we've done. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. you know, my my history is that it, I just, I survived. I found a way to survive. And part of that was being a liar. You know, I, I found ways to justify my lying, like we all do. And, um, and uh, but it was a survival skill. And I was at the same time desperate in my pursuit of God, going like, I know there has to be a way to be a whole person, to be a real boy. And, um, and that's what I tried to perform my way into, you know, becoming a real boy. And it, I just kept failing and failing and failing. Because, you know, if you believe you're a piece of garbage to begin with, you have no resources fundamentally to be anything but a piece of garbage. And ultimately, you will not only act that way, you will allow other people to treat you that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that became, you know, this story of my life where I just simply moved to somewhere new to try to start over and um, and hopefully give it a better shot than the last time. But it, I don't know how many hundreds of times I recommitted my life to Jesus, you know, it's just, oh, yeah. it was right. just such, such war inside yeah. of me. And then, um, you know, I drug that all into my marriage without, without inviting Kim into my shack. I didn't deal with it. And um, I, I blew up my marriage. I broke the world. Um, Kim caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And, and that was after Matthew was born, which was, who's our sixth child. And so at that point, I had to either find a way to change or kill myself because I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. And, uh, and um, thankfully I married the wrath of God, you know, so, <laughs> you know, part of, part of the reason that I'm as whole as I am today is because of the intensity of Kim's fury. And it took Kim and I 11 years to reconcile. Wow. And, um, and 11 years in which I thought it would never happen. But that also involved, you know, pulling the yellow pages off the shelf and looking under counselors and finding a therapist and walking into a total stranger and for the first time in my life saying, can you help me? And it was out of a desperation, a life and death kind of desperation. You know, mm. because suicide, suicide for me, and I think it is for a bunch of us, is it's the last way to run away before you, you really hit the bottom. And, uh, and I really hit the bottom. And, and for me to face Kim and to deal with this without making the adultery the new secret and continuing to pile up more and more loss, um, to do that uh, was the hardest thing. It, it felt easier to just simply kill myself. And, and that started that 11-year journey at the end of which I said it when I turned 50 because that all I blew up the world at when I was 38. And the year I turned 50, I finally thought, you know what? I can't believe this, but I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. Mm. And... Mm. I, you know, I don't have Amen. the addictions. I'm not just, I don't have an addiction to porn and all that other yucky stuff that so much comes along with the disassociation of the head from the heart. But, but I'm not addicted to doing something great for God. You know, the, the, mm. the shack doesn't give me like, oh, finally, you did something great for God. No, I, by the time I wrote it, I, I didn't have to. I never had to. And, and I was free from that addiction, as I said, 
that's a Coburn, you know, Coburn line. Though chains be of gold, they are chains all the same. Mm. And um, so there's gold chained addictions like yeah. choosing my dad and doing something great for God and having wow. a ministry and all that kind of stuff, you know. Wow. So so that's kind of an overview picture of of my life. Of course, there's lots of story and detail inside of that, but you kind of yeah. get the gist. And and that's why when you know my story, you go like, oh my gosh, this is this is God taking brokenness, taking loss, taking a cross, you know, taking something that uh, has been been crafted by human beings out of their darkness and then transforming it into an icon and a monument of grace. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, it's my sense of gratitude is, is beyond my capacity to find words for. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking of, uh, Anne Lamott said something about writing that if we write something that's real and true, it's likely going to connect with someone else. And I, I think what I love about the shack and, and really all your books is you write from that place of depth and truth and it feels so real, so palpable. You just, um, and I think that's why it connects with so many people because you're not, you're not just writing like, Oh, here's a great idea about God. I mean, here's some theological insight you're writing from this depth this place that was broken and, and has been healed. And, uh, and that's what I love about it, Paul. And I love about your, your work and why I think it, it resonates and does so much. And because I am such a huge proponent of the Trinity, and that sounds weird just coming out of my mouth, like that matters that I'm a proponent of the Trinity. But, but I mean, I, I just know how incredibly powerful Trinitarian reality is. I mean, Dallas Willard, my, my great mentor, he used that phrase all the time. He said, he would say, Jim, our whole, our whole ministry is just immersing people in Trinitarian reality. Yeah. And, and you do that uh, more beautifully, really, and more powerfully than, than others do. And I think that's what fiction does too, because fiction, uh, it, unlike nonfiction, which is kind of like you need, you're wrong and you need to think this way. What fiction does is it just lets people ease in. It takes people's guards down. Yeah. Have you found that in, in, in oh, the way? Oh, totally. Because yeah. nonfiction tends to reduce space. You know, I, I want to reduce your space to match my space. But fiction, if it, it, creativity, generally speaking, not just fiction, but music and arts and, and creativity generally, if it's, if it's good creativity, it creates more space than it uses. And there's an intrinsic respect for the other who participates in that space to hear for themselves, to see for themselves. And, um, and I, and I, I love that about fiction. And the thing about it is, is that it's true. You know, people say, is the shack a true story? And I go, yeah, it's true. It's just not real. You know, it's, it's parables are true, but they, they meet you at a place that is far deeper than just the mind. It's not like the mind is excluded, but our intellectual capacity is, especially I think in the West, is where we have gone to hide because most of the rest of us is broken and we know it. So we fake like our minds aren't broken either. And so we run there to hide. And that's where so many of our addictions are is because we're stuck in our heads. 
And fiction has a way of, as Lewis would say, of sneaking past our watchful dragons. And, mm. um, and I, that happened with the shack. So many people, the book hit them in the heart before their heads could engage. And then when their heads engaged, they ended up in cognitive dissonance. They ended up in this real sense of frustration or conflict internally between their head and their heart. Because their heart, um, like the president of Denver Seminary wrote an article and said, you know, I don't care what kind of Pharisee you are. Didn't you at least for a split second want to be in Papa's embrace when she picks McKinsey up and spins him around and says, I've been so looking forward to this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm especially fond of you. Yeah. And, um, and it's like, oh yeah, we have a longing that, that our heads have shut down and our institutional religious systems have, have shut down and, and we've, we've distrusted, um, our intuition and our, our ability to hear the voice and, and the soft um, whispers of the Holy Spirit, you know, so, but yeah, yeah. Uh, fiction is powerful. And, and I think it also, uh, and I think everybody's a creative being, so I don't think there's a category of creatives, but, but, but because we're, we're um, created in the image and likeness of God, who's a creator, you know, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. So, you know, we get to be involved in creativity, but religion tends to then take that creativity and turn it into propaganda and it mm-hmm. loses its power. And, um, and I think that's partly why I wrote the way that I did. I, I wanted, I wanted it to be a high expression of humanity, not a low one. Yeah, Cause my history in the church has been a low expression of humanity. Yeah. Well that Paul, that's a lovely segue. I love the word segue. Uh, into what I, in the book, uh, your book, Lies We Believe About God, uh, you, you, you uh, list a number of things. I would call them false narratives. That's a term I use as opposed to a true narrative. But right away, the first one in the book is God loves us, but doesn't like us. Yeah, And, and that gets right at the core. And, and especially what you talked about, you know, when, when Papa has that, that phrase, I'm especially fond of you. Uh, we do have this narrative, don't we, that, well, he loves us because it says it in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, but he doesn't really like us, you know, and you yeah. really nail that. Talk about that. And I think you tell the story of being in a, in a prison. Uh, yeah. Up in Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like 30 below <laughs> where your nose hairs freeze. And, uh, it was a woman's prison and, um, I'd gone into there and, and I, I love being inside of prisons. I'm in the last few years, I've been in a lot of them. And, um, and most recently among the death row guys in Tennessee, um, uh, in unit two, you know, Terry King and, and Donnie Johnson and wow. Ron and a bunch of Abu and, and, um, but I, I was up in this woman's prison and I, I just, I just told I just tell stories, you know, and afterwards this gal comes up and she just, she, she's, she's weeping. I mean, like shattered weeping and through her, through her tears, she gets out 
do you really think Papa is especially fond of me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And, and it just tore her apart, you know, and, and who knows all the depths of, of where that was coming from. But again, there is this fundamental false narrative, as you would say, that, yeah, God loves you because that's, you know, he kind of has to. And, um, but, but he's really opposed to you. So we don't know exactly what kind of love that is. It doesn't really match the way that we love our own kids or our grandkids, but you know, God's ways aren't our ways. I mean, we do all this mental gymnastics theologically and in order to get, to get God off the hook of, of, of our imperceptions or our, our false delusions about God. And, um, and, and by that little phrase, that little phrase, I'm especially fond of you, it changed things. And the reason it did is because when you say God loves you, the emphasis is on God. It's not on you. It's on the subject. But when I say I'm especially fond of you, all of a sudden the uniqueness of your personhood emerges as the centerpiece of that statement. The right. object is the centerpiece. And we can feel it. You know, we can feel it. I had, when I first wrote the book and I wrote it for my kids and a lot of people have asked me, you know, well, how did your kids like it? And I went, well, it took them a while, you know, because you give a book to your kids for Christmas. It's sort of like, oh, thanks, dad. You know, we'll get right on that. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so. Would have, would have liked a toy. Yeah, really, <laughs> really. So my, uh, my son, one of my sons was in, um, at Oregon State University. I uh, know at, uh, uh, yeah, Oregon State. And he was studying um, mechanical engineering. And he calls me up and he's bawling on the phone. I mean, he's just weeping on the phone. And this is, this is my son who's a mechanical engineer with an MBA who is now a Portland police officer, right? So, so he's, he's, he's not a weak little boy. And uh, um, so he's just weeping. And he says, Dad, you know, in chapter 15 in the shack where Mackenzie is standing on the hill with the Holy Spirit, watching Jesus at a distance walk into a worship environment. And uh, where all of creation is centered on Jesus. And, and what's fascinating is that scene is so embedded in my own history. Because I always felt like I was on the outside watching Jesus and the important people way over there. right? And so I'm writing that right out of my own history. And my son points that passage out. And he goes like, and you know when... When Jesus walks into that community and Mackenzie is watching from a distance and suddenly Jesus turns and Mackenzie and Jesus catch their eyes, their eyes meet. And from a distance, Mackenzie hears Jesus say, hey, Mac, I am especially fond of you. And my son is weeping. He says, dad, I heard him say that to me. Wow. See, and at mm. that point, who does it, who cares who doesn't like the book? You know, this is my <laughs> son, you know, and it's, and he heard Jesus say that to him. We all need, because, and, but that means we've got to deal with why am I deaf to that? Why, why don't I believe? And a lot of that has to go back to what do I actually think is, I think that I'm worthless. Why would Jesus be especially fond of me? And, you know, on top of that, we have so 
thought that the way God relates to us is based on performance. You know? Right. And so now I've got to perform my way into the affection of God, so which I'm constantly unable to do, especially if I've got a broken history. I'm just not, you know, it's, it's hard to do it even if you've gotten a great family background and all that kind of stuff to be perfect, you know? Right. <laughs> but when you've started with a deficit, it's like not going to work. And yet we still think that somehow God doesn't know the truth of who we are and doesn't love us with real knowing. He just sees our performance and judges us based on that. And at that point, what hope do we have if, right. if, if my relationship with God is based on performance? So then it's like, well, God loves me because God is love and God, you know, that's, God does that, but he doesn't like me. Mm -hmm. And, and then we can, you know, point out a whole bunch of reasons why we think that God doesn't like us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have uh, a phrase that I believe was given to me by the Holy Spirit as well. Sweet. And uh, it's one I say a lot and people have picked up on, and that is this one. It's, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that because, you know, Paul uses the phrase in Christ or Christ in us like some like 89 times. And, and so I know that my identity is in Christ. And so that I first said that phrase, you know, where people in whom Christ dwells. But then uh, it was a year or so later that the Holy Spirit kind of nudged me and said, and delights. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. That, that, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And you see that when the baptism of Jesus, you know, this is my beloved son in whom my soul delights. Yeah. That's one of the translations well pleased. of that passage. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that in great? My soul delights. Yeah. So I, I have a friend who goes into prisons now and, and all he says, he goes up to these guys and, and he goes like, hey, have you heard the news? And they go like, what? You've been included. Included in what? You've been included in the affection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, from the beginning, it's got nothing to do with how you perform. Mm. You, you've been included. And you know what happens? Invariably, the guy will say, that can't be true because, and they'll start confessing. Because uh. I did this, because I did this, because I did this, you know. And, and so a lot of our inability to hear the whisper of God about God's absolute relentless affection for us that is unalterable is because we think that our, our incapacity and our, our brokenness is an impediment to God's ability to love. We think that our inability to perform is bigger than God's being yeah. of love. Right. A higher tribunal than God himself is yeah. our yeah. view of our performance. That's, in, that's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, you've just done such amazing work and, and all your books are great. Obviously the shack has had a huge impact. I hope our listeners will also get the lies we believe about God because I think, I mean, it really gets right at a lot of what I call these false narratives. And Paul, I'm excited because you're going to be with us. You're going to, we get to be face to face at the Apprentice oh, Gathering. How cool and, is that? I know. Oh, it's going to be so fun. And It'll be great fun. Yeah, it really will be. I'm so excited to, for that and to hear your, your talk and then to dialogue with you. And um, I just, I, I feel a kindred spirit with you and I'm so grateful that you agreed to be with us. You agreed to be on this podcast and I'm just so thankful for you. And uh, man, I mean, you, you have gone through the, the deep, dark waters and the brokenness and 
uh, and God has healed you and done amazing things. And I'm, I'm thankful for where you are in your life yeah, to, 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 to write a book that sells 20 million <laughs> copies and you don't care. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love it. I just like that's God's great sense of humor. They're like, yeah, I'm going to have that happen to a guy who doesn't care about it. Uh, it's just fantastic. Well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till he doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He did wait. He waited yeah. with, for your, to, so, to you to get there. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. It really it is. is. It is. And I've got yeah. 12 grandbabies, so it's not like there's not things that I can be doing. So <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. You've got it a is, lot to do. Best. Well, oh, this great. has been so great. I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Thanks for being with us on the things above conversation podcast. And I can't wait to, to be face to face with you, Paul. And, Thanks so and much. I, you. So thank you, Jim. Been an yeah. honor to be with you. Big hugs. Big hugs to you. Blessings. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Paul is fantastic. He has so much to say. If you're interested in seeing Paul live, he's going to be at the Apprentice Gathering, September 26th through the 28th. And you can learn more about that at apprenticeinstitute.org, where you can sign up. I hope you join me next week for episode 48. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that if one day you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>